The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Here we are with Ray Dalio, the one and only. Hi, David. Uh, hi, it's great to have you, Ray. Thanks for great doing this. Great to be here. I always enjoy speaking with you. So, so we all know Ray Dalio, obviously, is the founder of Bridgewater and is an esteemed author of books as well as LinkedIn posts that we all wait for. But he also now is starting something actually with Masterclass as the leading, the number one luminary investor. So congratulations. That's how they pitch it. Is it? <laughs> well, I think we'd all agree with that. Uh, so. We have read your material, and we have some sense of how you structure it, particularly in your most recent book. You've got five basic forces that explain a lot of economic history. You go back several hundred years and look at it. And I thought we might take some of those and apply them to the present day. Uh, and as I recall them, and you'll correct me, uh, the first one has to do with money, credit, debt, the economy, right? And then internal common, uh, conflicts within a country, external, uh, and then uh, forces of nature which would be climate change probably today, and then technology. Start with the first one, uh, the, the one that involves debt, credit, money, the economy, and apply it to the here and now. One of the big raging questions is, are long-term interest rates, and for this purpose, I guess I mean really real interest rates, are they going to remain elevated? We're down at negative. We're now up above one. Are they going to remain elevated in the out years as you see it, or do you think they'll come back down? There are camps in both directions at this point. And you look at the long term. Long term, where are we headed? Well, it's most important to me to not just answer questions like higher, lower, or whatever, but to try to explain the mechanics, the cause-effect relationships that are going on, right? Um, and the reason I did this study, which then turned into a book, and I'm just a practical markets decision maker, is that three big things happened in my, are happening in our lifetimes that never happened before. Uh, that, let me say that again. Three things that surprise us that haven't happened in our lifetimes, but happened many times through history, are the creation of an enormous amount of debt and debt monetization. The second is the internal conflict, the large wealth gaps and the internal conflict that makes the politics of uh, populism and so on. And the third, is the great power conflict, uh, comparable powers, the United States and China, and the possibilities of war. Um, but back to, uh, to your question in terms of the mechanics, there are very basic, simple things. That there is, um, there is a debt cycle. There are short debt cycles. We're used to those. They last, on average, about seven years, give or take about three. Um, and you know you have recession, and interest rates are, uh, are low, inflation is low and the Federal Reserve becomes stimulative, and then you have growth, you have non-inflationary growth, and you have inflationary growth, and they tighten monetary policy, and then you have the slow up or the recession that follows until the cycle participates. We, it happens that way. We've had 12 of those, we're in the 13th, we're about halfway through that cycle, we're at the point where interest rates have to rise. Okay. So the level of interest rates, it's, you have to satisfy a debtor and a creditor. And so that means interest rates have to be high enough that the creditor gets a real return. 
higher than their money. And so, and if you don't do that, you create the cycle that we have before, where money's essentially free, interest rates are nil, or in some case negative, and you have a situation where you don't have to pay principal, so money was essentially free, then that imbalance is enormous, and it's made more enormous because even then the supply demand is not adequate. There's not enough demand to buy those bonds, and so the Federal Reserve's got to come in there and print money and buy those bonds and redistribute wealth. So you have that dip. So now you're moving, we have moved to a level of real interest rates. Think about inflation. Um, that is, um, depending on how you calculate, if you look at tips or if you look at short-term interest rates, they need a 1% to 1.5% real rate. Those days that we have seen in the past are over, and there's a big adjustment in that. So the, the headline for that is, so who have been the losers? Who have been the winners and who have been the losers? This is a different kind of uh, debt problem in that what happened is, in order to create this big transfer of wealth that there needed to be in various ways, uh, the government borrowed a lot of money because they spent a lot more than they earned, and they sell a lot of bonds. And then the Federal Reserve buys bonds, and it subsidizes those bonds. And so the big losers of this cycle has not been the individual balance sheets because the individual balance sheets have been improved. It is the fact that those who are holding government debt are the ones that are having the losses. So the central banks have all lost a lot of money. Um, the commercial banks bought a lot of these debts. So when we look at the commercial banking problem, it is largely a government debt problem because there was the financing of holding bonds with short-term interest rates, and so that was the squeeze. So you have that particular dynamic. As we move forward, um, the higher you raise the debt to income ratio, the more difficult that balancing act becomes. And so we're seeing a trade-off now that interest rates have got to be high enough for the creditor, but not too high for the debtor. And so you're seeing now this adjustment in which you're having sort of a 1%-ish growth rate, not the household sector having a problem, but uh, the those who are holding the bonds and, and so on, they're having the problems. And so you're seeing growth come down with still an inflation um, issue. The inflation issue comes from two parts, really. Uh, first of all, if you spend a lot more than you earn um, and you give a lot of money and credit, you're going to have an inflation. But um, it also comes from the supply-demand bond, of bonds. So if you look at who's benefiting in this, the household sector, the workers, are, are benefiting. <clears throat> this isn't a classic recession in which the unemployment rate goes up because the unemployment rate is remaining relatively good because there's wealth transfer and you have, um, and they are also having higher wage gauges. And then you have the inefficiency of the global supply chains, which has a, happens there. So what that means, I think, is that you have this stubbornly high inflation we're not going to go down to our targets for a number of the reasons. And then there has to be the real interest rates remaining high in that. And that creates a sort of stagflation kind of environment. So let's talk about that stubbornly high inflation. There are some who think that there are larger forces that may drive it back down. 
demographics in particular, uh, uh, too much savings actually globally as the population ages. At the same time, reduction in productivity, less demand coming online. Uh, some people argue, in fact, that we will have the inflation come back down on its own, and therefore the nominal rates, if you add your 1 to 1.5% on top of it for the real estate, they will come down. Do you disagree with that? Yes. Um, <clears throat> in the, um, it's a matter of the amount of money and credit created, and it's also a matter of productivity. And so when we look at the amount of money and credit, we will spend a lot more than we will earn. We know the budgets, we know the projections, we know individuals. That's going, the big risk there is a supply demand risk. So we are going to sell a lot of bonds and, and then the question is, does the Federal Reserve come in and then start to print them and make that? So I think from, from the demand, including employment and the amount of money creation, we have that power. And then we're also living in a different world particularly as supply chains change. The only big question is the technology impact. Like, if we take a five-year, you were talking about a longer-term yes. horizon, we'll have to talk about technology and the impact that that'll have on that in terms of productivity. But the demographics is not a favorable thing uh, because what we're going to have to do is draw down savings and there's going to be lesser number of population. So in terms of the, the uh, labor component, I don't see that as an, um, uh, a net positive. You mentioned that uh, going out, it looks like we're gonna be borrowing more than we're earning. Uh, does that mean we are in or headed for a debt crisis? You wrote a book on that as well, studying debt crises since 1945. Are we in a debt crisis or are we headed for one? Um, we are at the, in my opinion, we are at the beginning of a very classic late cycle, late big cycle debt crisis when the supply demand gap, when you're producing too much debt and you have also a shortage of buyers. What's happening now as we have to sell all this uh, debt is we then have, do you have enough buyers? There are changes now in terms of the quantities in the world that are being held by um, large investors around the world that have lost money in these treasury bonds and so on. And then there are geopolitical changes which are having an effect. Some cases, some countries are worried about sanctions. And then there's this geopolitical shift. So when I look at the supply-demand issue, there's a supply-demand issue for that debt. There's a lot of debt. It has to be bought. has to have a high enough interest rate. So a crisis, that's... You know, if we continue down this path in terms of what, what's likely over the next, you know, five and ten years, then you, what you reach the point that that balancing act becomes very difficult. How will we know? And is it really a function of not having enough buyers for the federal debt? Is there any evidence of that so far? Um, we, we're right at the brink of starting to find out that. The amount of selling of government debt um, collapsed, right? We didn't issue government debt. Um, and now we're going to issue a lot of government debt. And so when one looks at, when we look at the buyers, there appears to be a shortage, a significant shortage of the buyers for that government debt. But we're now at the brink of being able to see what that supply-demand um, picture looks like as we go over the next year and two. Given the challenges that we face, uh, fiscal challenges that you describe, 
we need a political process that will help us get out of it. Do we have that? It goes to the second issue that you always deal with, which is internal conflict. Well, the, the, the things that you see happen over and over again when you look at history is when you have a financial not good situation. At the same time as you have large wealth gaps, you start to see the emergence of populism, and we see extremism in both of the political parties. Okay, we see that split. A populist is an individual or a leader or a political person who will win at all cost. That the rules of the game don't as much matter. And so we're in a, a, a the, the January 6th type of incident and so on is very interesting. The political system in terms of primaries and, and the parties tends to create that sort of polarity. I think that, um, I think it's very clear that there is only one good outcome, if we can, and that's a strong bipartisan middle because either of the extremes is not going to be able to be dominant. You're, um, the small right the, um, or, or even the small left. And, um, and as a result, we're seeing a fragmentation. Geographically, you're seeing people move to different areas, not just because of taxes, but of differences in values and so on. Um, and so you're seeing this separation. I think over the next um, two years, um, the real question is, can we maintain, can we have a strong bipartisan middle, or are we going to have that kind of fragmentation? Be, we have two thing, three things aligning that are concerning. Uh, on this uh, short-term debt cycle, I call it, you know, the seven-year cycle, we're about halfway through. In other words, interest rates are now at a level that they're probably going to stay at, but they're probably not going to rise much from here, and there's tightness. And the consequences of that are going to be a weaker economy going forward. It doesn't have to be a big, big downturn because of the household sector, but it is a balance sheet kind of re uh, recession. And I think you're going to, that's, things are going to get worse in the economy. There's a financial issue at the same time as you have this internal conflict. So I think that that's going to make for um, a risky situation, particularly then when we deal with the third major influence, which is this conflict, this geopolitical conflict uh, in the world, particularly related to China, Russia, and uh, the implications that that has on uh, supply chains, production, and the like. Well, let's go exactly there, because you know China very well. You've spent a lot of time there. You've invested there over the years. Uh, what do you make of the situation with the U.S. and China? You said some things that we really think we're heading in a bad direction right now. R um, right now, um, there are um, the, the irreconcilable differences on a number of topics. Um, Taiwan, Russia, um, uh, reverse CFIUS, chips, and so on. They're kind of at the edge and that there's um, an inability to talk. So there's quite a bit of brinksmanship. And we are also heading into a political year here in which there's going to be more um, um, pressing, uh, pressure. Um, both sides are very worried about this. Um, so I think you're going to see restraint. I don't think it's going to lead to um, a terrible situation in terms of 
but it is leading, uh, you're going to see restraint in, an, in a period of time where you're going to see more te tensions. Um, there's the Mike Gallagher's commission and so on, um, more pressure with chips and so on and so forth. I don't think that that's going to cross the line, but it is going to raise tensions. You will see also um, more attempts, um, uh, Tony Blinken's going over, you'll see more attempts to try to smooth things out because both sides are afraid of where we are. In any case, while it'll be that kind of brinksmanship, most likely it there is a building of self-sufficiency. Uh, in other words, efficiency was, not, was the game before. Everything was global. You produce it in wherever the cheapest place was, most cost-effective, and we became very intertwined with each other. Um, now, in this global world, um, there's the worry about being cut off, cut off in all sorts of things. And so you're having that dynamic play uh, you know, a negative role um, in economics and inflation. In thinking about the U.S. relationship with China, which I think is probably the most important geopolitical economic relationship for the next generation, I would, I would venture to say, uh, many people have made much of the fact that China is going to overtake the United States in terms of the size of its economy, the strength of its economy. There are some questions about that now. Where are you on that question? And if, in fact, China is not as strong as we have thought it is, economically I'm talking about now, how does that affect the relationship? Um, I, I, think we're, I think it's almost like splitting hairs. There are two great powers. And, well, you know, the, the difference of overtake, um, if you take purchasing power parity, the size of GDP, they have slightly overtaken us. If you take the other, who knows? They're gonna, the main thing is they're comparable powers in many ways, um, having strengths. They can do a lot of, they have a lot of dependency with each other and they can do a lot of harm. So the most important thing, I think, is how we take care of ourselves. Can we get strong? Can we raise productivity? Can we be politically and economically cohesive so that we can be effective and strong? Because, um, you know, you can't um, rule out China. Since I started to go to China, you know, 1984, uh, per capita income increased by 28 times. It's, it's, it's a power, and it's a smart power. So it's going um, to be like that. No, there's not a winner or a, or a loser. There are only either you're going to have both winners or you're going to have both losers. What is the route for the United States to come to a functioning relationship economically with China? Because that seems to be what people are grasping for. I mean, you could say going back to 2000 and the WTO, that was part of the theory that China would become more like the United States, more like the West. That didn't quite work out that way. And now I think we're not quite sure how to deal with them. What is the way to have a relationship there? We're going to have different uh, systems. We're not going to agree on everything by any means, but we can really work with one, each other in a constructive way for the globe. Fear. <laughs> I have a saying, if you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because if you worry, you, you will make sure that the thing you're worrying about doesn't happen. And right now, they're at, they're at the brink. And so um, the understanding of where the red lines are, and um, just like the Soviet Union, mutually assured destruction was the means by which we got through that, that notion of, um, Pushing each other um, will be the, you know, just do not 
cross certain red lines. You know, um, chips are oil. In World War II, um, the United States uh, shut off, uh, embargoed Chinese, uh, Japanese oil, and they froze their assets, sanctions, their bonds. Um, it could be very analogous with chips and with, um, with bonds. Um, there's worried about sanctions. Those kinds of, there's a, there's, a, there's a limit to being strong, and then there's that issue. So I think restraint on both parties um, is going to be of paramount importance. One of the things that people uh, hope for, I would say, is some cooperation, fundamental cooperation between China and the United States when it comes to climate, trying to deal with climate issues. Your fourth element, as I recall, was acts of nature and climate. Uh, what can we do with China? And by the way, going back to your point that first we have to start with our being strong, what we should be doing on our own about climate. Uh, the, the, there'll be probably, I would expect, some superficial cosmetic um, attempts at uh, cooperation on climate. The other more contentious issues will remain simultaneously. Um, and... Yes, the climate issue was very interesting. When I did this study motivated by the first three of the last 500 years, I saw that acts of nature, droughts, floods, and pandemics toppled more civilizations, caused more deaths than any of the things I mentioned before. And so climate is certainly an issue, and um, we're going to see, it's not like we're going to have great surprises, though great technologies are coming, but the, the worst is, is still ahead of us. Um, and um, you, I think you know enough about that to say that um, this is not an easy or inexpensive uh, problem to handle. Fortunately, there have been uh, great advances in many sorts of technology, but it's a long and expensive way to go. It would not be easy or inexpensive if we all agreed on how to handle it. Uh, to some extent, this gets me back to your second issue, which is internal conflict. Because right now we see, for example, how many 17 states, something like that, are adopting legislation to restrict their pension plans for making investments based on ESG. Uh, can we address climate as a nation? Put aside China and the rest of the world. Can we address it as a nation when we have that kind of division, political division, over even addressing the question of climate? Right. Um, I mean, my, I'm not, opti <laughs> not optimistic, particularly because it's also very expensive. And so what do you do when there are so many expenses? There's the climate issue. There's the social issues, education, poverty, and, and school districts. My, I, my wife works in some of the, to help out in some of the worst school districts. I'll give you an example. In Connecticut, which is always one, two, or three richest country, uh, states in the country, 22% of the high school students are either dropped out of high school or are, have absentee rates of greater than 25% and are failing classes. And there's poverty in all these. So we have so many um, necessities, expenditures, and problems that we cannot agree on how to handle those problems. So it's, there's a climate component to it. But there's, uh, you know, a bigger, more fundamental component, which is why, I mean, I'm curious and I hope that we will see a strong bipartisan middle beat the extremes in the political situation because it is difficult. 
Let's try to end on a hopeful note here and get to your fifth issue, which is technology or invention. You mentioned it earlier. I mean, you founded Bridgewater, and from everything I've read about Bridgewater, I mean, you put a great emphasis on the systems involved, the mechanics involved, the engine. Uh, it seems to me, without knowing about it, having done this for 25 years or so, that AI might apply to that fairly easily. Is that your sense? Where are we going with artificial intelligence? Yeah, I'm so excited because, as you say, for 25 years, I would always write down my investment principles, all my principles, and then I would convert them to algorithms which became decision rules, which became systems, and everything would run, and they would, like setting up a computer chess game, it would play, I would play next to it, and we would then reconcile differences and we would learn together. Um, now what's happening with generative AI is that um, I can, one can, take all of that knowledge and have it there and then go beyond that to have it as a partner, a thought partner. Because the um, intelligence has capacities that the human mind doesn't have. We don't, you know, the ability to process so much and everything at the same time. So um, I'm extremely excited. I think that this is a, um, the greatest revolution, bigger than the internet revolution. Um, and, uh, but like technology, um, it really depends. The problem isn't with the technology. The problem is with the people who use the technology. Will that technology be used to raise humanity's living standards? Or will that be used for war, in a sense, for hurting each other? And so, but any way we're gonna cut it, if you take those five, we're gonna go through a time warp. If, if, if we take the next five to 10 years, in the next five to 10 years, it's like gonna go through a time warp. We're gonna come out the other side and you're gonna see a very completely different world. I'm gonna take that as hopeful. Okay, Ray Dalio, thank you so much. He's a luminary investor, but also he's the founder of Bridgewater. Thank you, thanks a lot. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.